Welcome everybody back to Conduct Detrimental. This is the end of the NFL season. They've crowned a champion. The Los Angeles Rams are the winners of this year's Super Bowl, but it's far from the end of the NFL season, which as everybody knows, 365 days a year, day after day. And this week, the chickens have come home to roost. It's all coming to a head this week. We've got Brian Flores potentially amending his lawsuit. We've got new investigation against Dan Snyder, maybe a new congressional inquiry regarding Snyder. We've got the Ross tanking allegations. We've got a lot to say about Stan Kroenke. And then, then of course, New York sports betting. It's an action-packed episode of Conduct Detrimental. And joining me, as always, is my partner in crime, Dan Lust. So, Dan, where do you want to start this week? I guess we have to start with the Super Bowl. Any observations, any takeaways about how you feel about you know, what happened yesterday? I know I know where this is going. I have a, certainly a, a couple of observations. I think number one, Dan, which I'm sure you and I will get into, this is the first Super Bowl in New York where sports betting is legal. So before we get into the fun stuff, Dan, I play some legal wagers on the Super Bowl, which we can get into. I did hit all of my props between Cooper Cup yardage, Odell Beckham touchdowns. And Dan, I, I did very well. So this can be an advertisement for New York legal sports betting. As for our sports law topics, I almost think it, everything came to a head last week between Washington, you know, between what's going on with Brian Flores, and certainly we can even talk about John Gruden, right? We have a couple couple arrows pointed at the NFL. But yeah, Dan, I think it's a fine place to start with the Super Bowl. And that kind of will guide our, our conversation this week as to what, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, what landmines the NFL is facing right around the corner. Well, first with the Super Bowl, I mean, I'm not from St. Louis. I don't really have an ax to grind, you know, with how things went down. But it's really irritating to know that St. Louis, you know, the region, you know, city of St. Louis County and the stadium authority, they basically need to use... Mike Florio's words, they had a tiger by the tail. And now they, they let Stan Kroenke off the hook and he's on the victory stand, you know, you know, he's crowned, you know, Super Bowl champion and he's riding as high as possible. And it must really, really bother St. Louisans how this went down. They had a chance to put the entire NFL, Kroenke and the Rams on trial. Maybe it would have been delayed a little bit because of uh, because of COVID. And there's no guarantee the trial would have started in January, but it certainly would have loomed over the Super Bowl had St. Louis not settled this lawsuit. And it's a missed opportunity. It really is. I mean, this the, the game and the outcome magnified the error, in, in, in my opinion. I thought the Super Bowl coverage was fine. Whatever. It is what it is. It's the Super Bowl. I like the questions that Goodell was getting hit with, you know, in that sunny, hot LA sun. He was getting hit with Washington questions, Flores questions. You know, but I didn't really hear him. If there was one, someone can correct me. I didn't hear any reference on any of the coverage from about two weeks leading up to the Super Bowl. I didn't hear St. Louis mentioned once. I didn't hear it on the broadcast. I didn't hear it by Goodell. I didn't hear about any questions, you know, with respect to St. Louis. So that that's the part that I think you and I found to be a little disappointing. The closer you have waited to settle that case up until trial, right? You could have made, obviously you could have settled for more money. I don't think anything controversial, but the, the spotlight placed on St. Louis, you know, that's what the NFL did. That's why they settled the case 45 days out. So no one would talk about it. And then, you know, even Dan, when, when Cronky uh, was up uh, accepting the trophy, Lombardi trophy at the end of the day, it was like, First Super Bowl in Los Angeles, like second for the Rams. It was like, why can't we reference Kurt Warner winning the Super Bowl in St. Louis? So, I mean, you know, I, maybe it's just me, but I'm like, I, I think it was a pure whitewashing. I think Kroenke had the message out. 
Let's not reference St. Louis. He could have taken the high road. It didn't cost him anything. It cost him seven hundred ninety. Oh yeah, it cost him seven hundred ninety million dollars. That, that, that lawsuit is over. You know, to the victor goes the spoils, and he could have at least tried to, you know, make amends. And, and he made no effort to. I mean, there's a lot of bad blood in this lawsuit, and I could tell you with the Super Bowl victory and all the, you know, pomp and circumstance around the game being uh, played at SoFi Stadium, the value of his franchise probably went up another half a billion dollars. Great. Just with this Super Bowl victory. And over the next year or two, the city of St. Louis and the county are probably going to squander their spoils from the settlement. And, you know, looking back at this years from now, if they're not already having some post-purchase dissonance, I think there's going to be a lot of regret about not taking this to the limit and not just trying to extract more money from the NFL and from Kroenke, but certainly Victor's justice of being able to kind of hold this over the league during their signature event while the game is being hosted by SoFi Stadium, that had to have had a lot of value. And the $790 million would have been there on January 10th. It would have been there on February 10th. I mean, the trial wasn't even starting yet. And this is a case study in lacking the killer instinct because there was a lot more upside left for St. Louis. And I don't think this settlement was, was walking away over the next 60 day period. And this could have been a chance to stick it to the league and force Kroenke to address and force Goodell to address these questions during the biggest event of the NFL's calendar. Yeah. As we just kind of think about this and I, and I had the thought in, in live, I watched Goodell give the trophy to Kroenke and I'm like, I was reading lips and when Kroenke's like, thank you, Roger. And I'm like, can you imagine a world where like Kroenke's testimony, like just skewers the NFL by accident. And there's all, I mean, there's still this bad blood. I, I would think with this indemnification agreement, I don't think they figured that out yet. And I'm like, these two guys on stage together, I don't know how many times Kroenke and Goodell talk to each other. I imagine Goodell has some animus against Kroenke for the way this deal, this worked out and the way that Kroenke, you know, seemingly tried to renege on, on this indemnification promise. But I'm like sitting here and I'm like, yeah, January 10th trial. Dan, before I finish, how, how long is this trial supposed to be? Was it a three-week trial? Did they, oh, did God, it? no. The trial like this, with all the economic components of it, two phases, liability and damages, I think we're sitting in this courtroom, and maybe we're literally, you and I are literally sitting in this courtroom for a minimum of six weeks. But, you know, with the, with the COVID cancellations, there's no guarantee that the trial would have come off on January 10th or even February, you know, early February. So it may have been in abeyance for a little while longer, but it would have kept the issue alive. And we're looking at in close to a two month trial. There are just too many aspects to this case that cannot be tried in a week or two weeks. Just to finish the thought, everyone listening to this podcast uh, or that follows us on social media, they know about this lawsuit. They know about the $790 million, but we, we forget as sports fans, we're in this little, very small universe right? The overall population, let alone, I mean, just the overall sports fan, I think less than 10% of the sports fans know about this lawsuit. That's just, just what it is. So if you had put this on the same level, like a lot of people learned about the Washington sexual harassment, toxic workplace saga through the Super Bowl. A lot of people learned about the Brian Flores lawsuit through the Super Bowl coverage because of there's no two weeks of football. So I don't know what the right term is, but I would have loved to have St. Louis had that spotlight. So everyone's talking about Washington and there's a congressional oversight committee, you know, putting Washington, maybe, maybe they had a, you know, the same kind of, which we'll get into the fire and brimstone with respect to Kroenke, with respect to these potential tanking allegations, the same way that everyone's going after Ross, Stephen Ross, which I know we're going to speak about, but I just, I think it's a missed opportunity for, for the spot like yeah. to be placed on St. Louis. So I, yeah. I, people can yell at me. I, I think that's objective. I think it missed out. No, no, real question. I agree with you, Dan. And I'd like to kind of tie back to Bob Liss's statement. He's the, he was a trial lawyer for St. Louis. He tried to sort of make this out to be a, a, a moment 
in the sun for St. Louis that the attention cast upon the region by virtue of this lawsuit created an abundance of awareness and goodwill towards St. Louis. But given the spotlight of the Super Bowl for a two-week period and the and the continued pushing of this narrative on Radio Row, the commissioner's press conference, the amount of advertising and the amount of awareness that would have been devoted to the St. Louis case. I mean, they didn't even ask any questions. The national media almost totally ignored the issue. And for two weeks, the region would have been in the spotlight, casting a pale over the biggest game of the year. And I'll take this, I'll take this to my grave, Dan. This was one of the worst decisions that municipal leadership could have ever made. They dealt from a position, they, they folded their cards. They cashed out far from what the desired result would have been. They had nothing to lose. We've gone over this so many times, but it just gnaws at me. It's been almost three months since the settlement, and it's still stunning to me. So I guess we can move on to the other stuff, but I think, Dan, you and I are on the same page that uh, St. Louis got kind of the raw end of the stick, even from a publicity perspective. Dan, so the other two stories, you know, obviously the NFL got hit with two heavy stories during Super Bowl press. One was Brian Flores, one was Washington, the other one probably should have been St. Louis. They were not hit with it. Dan, what do you want to go to next? You want to go to Flores or you yeah. want to go to Washington? I think Flores is, is a good lead. Snyder and Ross are too interconnected and they lead down too many rabbit holes. Ross is the common uh, nucleus here, but go, go ahead. Yeah, Dan, let's let's go on the latest on floors. We have to obviously have some updates on that front. Yeah, well, I mean, there's been reporting from Mike Florio and from other sources that Brian Flores is going to amend his lawsuit to assert a Title VII employment discrimination claim against the Houston Texans uh, based upon his you know, interviewing for the position while litigation was pending and then not getting the job. And his theory is, and we have we haven't seen the allegations in, in a pleading yet, but I suppose he's going to argue, and, and, his, and his lawyers indicated in their, in their press release, that there's a causal relationship between his filing of the lawsuit and then consequently not getting the job as head coach and some compromise candidate, Lovey Smith, being given the head coaching position sort of as a convenient out for the Houston Texans, because had they, had they hired the inexperienced wide head coach, it would have fed into Brian Flores's legal theory as to the disparate treatment of, of black coaches in the NFL. So the Texans went ahead and they hired a different black coach. And he's now going to be arguing, well, this is a retaliatory failure to hire. And it opens up a new legal front in the war against not just the National Football League, but now adds the Houston Texans as a new defendant. I guess here's, we, we talked about this a little bit in the last, last podcast. We'll see what the Houston Texans, if they're ever called to testify under oath, what they, what they say in this context. But the fact that they hired Lovey Smith instead of Josh McCown, I think doesn't help Brian Flores' case. If they went ahead and fired Josh McCown, that's a very different story from a legal perspective and from a PR perspective, but they went with the Caucasian head coach with very little to almost no real coaching experience in the NFL. Meanwhile, Lovey Smith, right? African-American head coach, has had success at the NFL level, has coached, he has more experience coaching at the head coach level than Brian Flores does. So I gathered, and this is what we talked about last week, that that was what the lawyers involved in this case were trying to set up the Texans to do. You do down to three finalists, right? Gannon, McCown, both Caucasian head coaches, and Flores. And if you rule out Flores, right, and you want to say, quote unquote, retaliation, you're going to go with one of the two other Caucasian uh, head coaches that, you know, are, that don't really have any experience. The fact that they went off the board, 
right? And I spoke about it in the last podcast. Lovey Smith goes, I don't know when I became a finalist for the job. That I think threw a wrench in the lawyer's plans here. And now they're claiming retaliation. But, you know, if the Texans went ahead and hired an African-American coach, the optics, I don't, I don't think are as strong as they could have been otherwise for, for the lawsuit purposes. Yeah, but I mean, the hiring of, of Lovey Smith as a head coach is almost like a convenient excuse. I guess they would call that, you know, on some of the burden shifting, this would be deemed a legitimate non-discriminatory reason. You know, we, we hired a different coach. And by the way, he was black. And that could just be set up as not a legitimate reason to dismiss Flores's Title VII retaliation claim. But I want to get back to the timing on this, because a lot of the reporting indicates that, that there's an amendment to the lawsuit that's imminent. And I think I want to disabuse you know, people of that notion, because I've done a little bit of research on this. Now, retaliation claims in the failure to hire context are part of the Title VII regime. And Flores didn't allege a Title VII claim in his complaint because there's a, an administrative remedy that he has to pursue before the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So all Title VII claims have to first go to the EEOC on a sort of a, a charge of discrimination, like the filing of an administrative proceeding. And that has to go through the EEOC process before Flores could even assert a violation of Title VII in the lawsuit. So that's also true of retaliation claims based upon failure to hire. And all the research that I've been able to do, thanks to my handy Westlaw account, reveals that those types of claims fall under the sort of umbrella of Title VII. And Flores has got to uh, exhaust his administrative remedies by including the new Title VII retaliation claim within his administrative filing. So there's a question as to whether he can even open up his lawsuit to assert it or rather must await the conclusion of the administrative proceeding under sort of a, an exhaustion of administrative remedies principle. So Dan, on that point, I'm looking at the initial complaint, just to what you just said. Paragraph 25 states under the headline administrative procedures, and for our non-lawyers, we're getting into the weeds, but you'll see where we're going with this. It says plaintiff will file a charge of discrimination with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, that's the EEOC, an administrative prerequisite to filing an action under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and will amend, that's a fancy word for revise, will amend this action to include claims under Title VII at the appropriate time. So I spoke to a, a close friend of the show that this action, in order to file it as they did, was required to have gone to the EEOC first. And that saying, we will file this charge of discrimination later and we'll amend later, that that is an odd move. Why wouldn't you have just done this first before filing the lawsuit? Then it gets to the point that you know, I think you and I have been making in, in different forms, different shows, but this lawsuit was filed in a way to win the headlines. It was filed the Tuesday after the conference championships to get two weeks of media. You could have filed the EEOC and then filed the lawsuit later. But by all indications, at least from the way I read this, the lawsuit was filed when it was to win the headlines and it did an effective job at that. But right, some administrative steps were, uh, we'll say, skipped or done in a backwards order, but uh, obviously for the purpose of winning the headlines. Well, well, I think there's a difference between the various claims he raised. He's going to bring two federal claims. One is under Section 1981 for employment discrimination based on race. But he's also going to bring a Title VII claim. The 1981 claim he could bring into court right away. There's no exhaustion requirement, meaning no requirement that Brian Flores first go to the EEOC and file an administrative complaint alleging a violation of Section 1981. He could, do, he could go into court right now on that. By contrast, however, claims for discrimination under Title VII, 
must first be addressed in a charge of discrimination filed with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC. And as to those claims, he has to pursue or exhaust his administrative remedy before he can amend his complaint to add a Title VII cause of action. Uh And retaliation claim or the hypothetical retaliation claim falls within the Title VII framework. So we may have to go the EEOC route on the claim against the the Houston Texans. So that's the dichotomy between the two federal causes of action. Let me ask you this. This past week and this week, I have a lot of depositions. So I'm going to ask you a yes or no question, Mr. Wallach. You can only answer yes or no. Okay. Yes or no. Do you agree that this lawsuit was filed when it was to win the headlines? Yes or no, Mr. Wallach? Partially. That's not an answer. Yes or no, Mr. Wallach? No. Okay. Thank you. It was filed. There are further questions. No, I no further questions. It was it was filed when it was filed to win the headlines, but ultimately it was not filed solely for the public relations. Oh, I, I, I agree. I, the timing of it, the yeah, timing of it right. certainly had a, had a news value component right. of it. That, that's all, and and I, this is why. Yeah, you can answer with one word. I'm sorry. I mean, I need. I need yeah, my witnesses were possible. fighting me too. My witnesses were fighting me too. But you know, we have some fun. Yeah, that's my fun. weakness. That's my my uh, you know my my one weakness. I can't keep it to one word. So let me just say one thing on that. And there's another. This question of the retaliation, the Title VII, the EEOC. Put that uh, on the side for a second. So I want to make sure our sports fans are paying attention to this. So you put that over here, right? The other question that people have asked me, and uh, lawyers are having these communications. Why was this filed as a class action lawsuit? Why did it need to be filed as a class action lawsuit? So the uh, the answer to that is also somewhat similar, a little bit different. And Dan, you got into a little bit in the last podcast. I think you and I can both agree that the most likely outcome for the Gruden saga is that the case gets kicked to arbitration because it's a, uh, well, hold on. And we won't agree on that. But I think there is a much stronger argument that the Gruden case gets kicked to arbitration and the Flores case, if it's filed individually, gets kicked to arbitration because there's an argument that would fall under the coach's contract. Now, meanwhile, the difference between Gruden and Flores as of today is that Flores is manifesting this as a class action lawsuit, which is less likely to be viewed as a normal employment disagreement subject to arbitration. So my reading of this, it's filed as a class action lawsuit to avoid arbitration. That was almost a preemptive defense to getting the case kicked to arbitration. What do you think about that theory, Mr. Wallach? I think that's certainly part of the reason, because in arguing against the propriety of Roger Goodell serving as arbitrator, I mean, he has no class action experience. He's not even a lawyer. He's not even a lawyer. And the NFL is going to trot him out as a sort of the adjudicator of complicated class action claims with subclasses and all these, you know, um, technical legal findings that he's going to have to make about numerosity and typicality and adequacy. He's ill-suited to serve as an arbitrator in the class action context. So as to that point, you're absolutely right on the money. But I think there's a, a bigger reason why this was styled as a class action. And it has everything to do with Mr. Green, because if Brian Flores had brought this as a single individual action, the likelihood is that he would have had difficulty finding an attorney to take this on a contingent fee basis. He may have had to pay more out of pocket in legal fees, maybe even on an hourly basis, or certainly on a blend between hourly and success fee. But by bringing it as a class action, it sort of wet the appetite. And certainly there's more, it could be potentially be a more lucrative case for Doug Wigder's law firm, because now when you have a class of 60 to 100 black coaches and general manager candidates and the damages get into the millions of dollars, then the federal court will determine what percentage of the common fund 
should be paid over to Wigdor as his legal fee. So you're talking about the, the baseline on class action common fund settlements being 30%. And under that calculus, there's a potential seven, high seven figure, maybe even eight figure recovery for the Wigdor law firm. So he's, of course, he's going to take this case on a contingent fee basis, whereas he might not have had this been an individually filed lawsuit. Who knew that lawyers are motivated by money? That's such an interesting development we've just figured out here. Well, you know, you and I are so used to the conduct detrimental world of broadcasting and podcasting and all the legal analysis we do on radio stations and TV stations across the country. The collective compensation that I've received for all of that (laughs) has probably been uh, zero times a million. What is zero times a million? I think it's zero. But Dan, there was a fun math pattern. I feel like if you do something to the zero power. Like the exponent? The answer was one. The best class action war story I ever had, the best Christmas bonus I ever had was the day that I successfully settled a class action lawsuit that I litigated on behalf of the firm, for the firm. And we were representing a, a couple of investors in real estate suing, I guess, a couple of class action defendants. I settled the case for eight figures and I got a Christmas bonus that was larger than my annual salary. So to all you young lawyers out there, if you have a choice between podcasting or being a plaintiff's class action counsel with good cases, the latter is certainly going to be more financially lucrative. Uh, That was one of the best paydays I ever had in my life. But I like doing this a lot better, Dan, if it's any consolation, the uh, spiritual compensation I get from Conduct Detrimental is much more meaningful to me than any any other compensation I ever received. We need to find more Cleveland Guardians cases, and we need to take on their cause, the law firm of Wallach and Lust. It'll happen eventually. I want to clear up one other misconception about the Title VII retaliation claim, because I've seen a lot of comments on my timeline of people conflating the retaliation claim with the racial discrimination claim. For retaliation, Flores doesn't have to prove that the uh, Texans hiring or failure to hire Flores was motivated by racial animus. That's not that at all. He's got a separate racial discrimination claim under 1981 in Title VII. The retaliation claim is based upon Flores engaging in protected activity, namely the filing of a lawsuit based on racial discrimination is considered protected activity under Title VII, And his argument and what he's going to have to prove to get by a motion to dismiss and prove at trial is that the position as to him was eliminated. And the reason it was eliminated is because he was engaging in protected activity, namely the filing of the lawsuit. And the reason he wasn't hired was because he filed this lawsuit. So that's a separate analysis than the racism component, which is sort of the main Title VII claim to win on the retaliation, he's gonna have to show a causal relationship between the hiring decision and the filing of this lawsuit. Therein lies the difference between retaliation and a normal Title VII discrimination claim. Of course, there's gonna be burden shifting, and if he gets over making this prima facie case that he was engaging in protected activity and was fired and, and wasn't hired because of it. The burden shifts to the Texans to show that they had an alternative reason for not hiring him. And then the burden shifts back to Brian Flores. So it, it, it's a lot of burden shifting in this case. I don't want to go too, uh, too far down the rabbit hole, but I, I, I want to really convey that this doesn't require a showing of racial discrimination, just the 
employment decision being based upon his engaging of the protected activity of filing a lawsuit. We're going to obviously keep following this lawsuit closely. Dan, before we get into uh, Washington, I want to just a quick note to our sponsor, Themis Bar Review. You know, we, we talked about the Los Angeles Rams hoisting the Lombardi Trophy. This past weekend, I had the honor of, I don't want to say hosting, I guess hosting. I'm the professor, a sports professor at New York Law School. New York Law School ran the soccer negotiation competition. We had teams from around the world and a lot of listeners of Conduct Detrimental. I'll name, shout out a couple of schools, be it Tulane, Marquette, Creighton Law School. You can go down, down the board, Pace Law School. Miami Law School, Quinnipiac. We had a lot. We had 22 teams from across the country. And at the end, the winner, we said, got to host the Themis Cup. The finals were between Marquette Sports Law, which is a sports law powerhouse, as, as people know, and Creighton Upstart. You guys know I have connections to Nebraska. So I was rooting for both. Marquette ends up winning and they got to host the Themis Cup. So thank you to our sponsor, Themis Barbie, who knew about the competition through listening to the podcast decided to sponsor us. And so, yeah, it was a lovely competition. The world uh, for a weekend, the weekend of the Super Bowl got to unite over sports law. So it was a very special moment. Lots of friends of the show, Jeremy Evans, who's been a prior guest here, Ben Schrader, president of the Chicago Sports Law Association, Michael Donadio, who was a lawyer, um, you know, within the soccer world. Everyone's posting about how special this was. So big thanks to Themis, big thanks to everyone, competitors, coaches that showed up the next year in person in New York Law School. Dan, Dan, it's kind of special. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I was kind of, you know, a little, little tear came to my eye. I'm really impressed that I didn't know Creighton had a sports law, you know, uh, footprint and that they, they made it all the way to the finals. That's that's fantastic for Creighton. One, By two, the way, two one else, two one else. Wow. OK, before we get to the Washington stuff, just to note, we, we, Dan and I will cover Major League Baseball lockout today. We're recording this podcast on Tuesday, February 15th, was supposed to be the day. The pitchers and catchers report. We're obviously monitoring that story and there hasn't really been much updates. We will talk about that. You know, at a later point in time, we're not going to talk about it today. The big trade that occurred in basketball, we're not going to talk about it today. I'm sure there will be a time to talk about it. James Harden traded for Ben Simmons, a big one. There will be some sports ramifications, I'm sure. But Dan, let us go to the final NFL story that I know you want to hit some sports betting. On the Dan Snyder front, and I think uh, we'll get into Dan Snyder a little bit, Stephen Ross. Some big news over the weekend, in addition to Flores potentially amending his complaint, it was really twofold, that the owners are considering, or I don't know if that's considering what it means, but that Dan Snyder might be forced to sell his team. And Stephen Ross, who's connected to these Brian Flores allegations, there's an allegation that Stephen Ross offered Flores $100,000 to lose each game, that both owners are potentially on the chopping block. So Dan, I'll turn it to you. I want to get into the, the oversight roundtable and whatnot, and the you know congressional inquiries. But what do you think? Do, do we think there's a good chance that one or both of these owners are, are, are losing their team anytime soon? Well, I mean, let's before we jump the gun, I mean, they're both entitled to notice and an opportunity to be heard but, you know, under the NFL Constitution and bylaws were a long way away from substantiating Brian Flores' accusations against Stephen Ross. I mean, he's going to need a witness. I mean, in the absence of a witness and or electronic or digital corroboration of this, it's going to be really difficult. Just not only forget, forget about a criminal case, but in the world of civil litigation or NFL, you know, adjudication, having Brian Flores make an accusation like that without having a credible corroborating witness. I don't know how how folks can say, well, you know, if you read all the headlines on, on, on Tuesday, which is we're recording on Tuesday, it's the insinuation from Pro Football Talk, the New York Post and all the headlines regarding this story is that, you know, Ross is in jeopardy of being forced to sell his team. Yet there has not been a whit of discovery on this. The, the lawyers haven't gotten involved. This hasn't been placed at issue before any adjudicatory body. There's just been an allegation followed by a swift press release denial by Stephen Ross. I don't think we're at a point 
think where we could say Ross is in jeopardy. I think there may be an undercurrent or a belief within NFL circles that this really, in fact, happened. But uh, I mean, I get back to the point I made on the last podcast. You know, Brian Flores' salary is $3 million. The bribe? $100,000 per loss? Well, he, he had a five-win, 11-loss season. Cincinnati, which had the top pick, had only two wins. So the differential between where Flores ended up without taking the bribe and where Cincinnati ended up was just three loss difference. That's $300,000. You would expect me as a juror, in the absence of corroborating evidence to believe that Brian Flores would place his career in jeopardy and basically go to prison or risk being involved in a situation like that, or Ross risk losing his team for what essentially amounts to a 10% bonus on top of the annual salary of Brian Flores. Now, if you're going to convince me that Flores received an offer like that, I would expect the inducement to be a lot higher or certainly a different structure, like an extra term added to his contract. But of course, Ross isn't going to add term to Flores' contract because that was the first year in which he was the head coach. So in year one, when he only won five games, he's not getting a long-term extension. So that's not credible. But any $100,000 bribe, assuming this is going to be true, is going to leave a paper trail. Now, how are you going to send $100,000 to Brian Flores? You're going to to put it in an envelope and give him cash? You know, Ross is going to say that this was not serious, a joke, or he's going to deny it. But the bottom line, if this was a real offer, how does this ever get consummated without leaving a paper trail? I think that's where this kind of gray area we're in, Dan, and and we talked about in the last podcast, like, what, is there a paper trail? Is there an in-person witness? There was that story that I think very comically disappeared from NFL.com that an unnamed witness overheard the offer being made. And Dan, as you pointed out on social media, the, the, you know, maybe the incident occurs at the offer. I'm not, I haven't seen any reports that the offer was accepted, that Flores actually got a check. It might've just been some type of a conversation. I I don't have any indication that it was done via email or text or something that physical that we could see. So just to add to what you are saying, the report this weekend, again, I think it's from Mike, Mike Florio as well, has done an excellent job uh, on the story, is that potentially Ross's argument here is that he was joking when he made the offer. So if there is a witness here, some unnamed witness that we don't know who the name is, we don't exactly know who it is, you know, we don't know if they're connected to the Dolphins or there's some random person, but that potentially Ross would argue that if someone did overhear it, that he was only joking. So we're now going in two, three levels down this argument. So it's, it's fascinating to see this stuff come out. Joking about a bribe is like saying bomb on an airplane. That's not going to be a, a factor that clears him in this case. If he, even if he was joking about offering Brian Flores $100,000 per loss to tank the season, he's going to be excommunicated by, by, the, uh, you know, by Commissioner Goodell and by the executive committee of the NFL. I mean, there's a whole process here. I mean, this technically would fall under the NFL bylaws and constitution and constitute, if not conduct detrimental to the NFL, there's that term again, but it would fall under the specific provisions of Article 9.1C, which is prohibited conduct under the Constitution and bylaws, basically offering or attempting to influence the outcome of a game. I mean, whether it's a joke or not, I think the NFL would be within his, with Commissioner Goodell would be within his rights to make a recommendation that the executive committee cancel or forfeit Stephen Ross's ownership interest in putting the franchise up for sale. There is no joke here. There's no way to add levity 
to the notion of making a bribe. It's as serious as it gets. This goes to the integrity of the National Football League, and you don't joke about things like this. So unless Ross knows for sure that someone overheard this offer, I think he has to stick to his story. And his initial press release called Flores's accusation false, malicious, and defamatory. And that's the problem with press releases and not necessarily waiting for the answer to a complaint, once you've once you've basically charted or, or, or indicated what your story is in a press release, any attempt to water that down is going to make the press release look inauthentic and false in and of itself. So I think he has to own this denial unless he's crystal clear and absolutely sure that there was a third party who overheard this alleged bribe. And I know we were talking about NFL.com had some initial reporting on this issue and then it got scrubbed from the website. But but one of the, one of the journalists who works for the NFL.com, which is a subsidiary of the NFL reported that there was a third person who overheard this alleged bribe. And if that is in fact the case, it is going to be curtains for, Brian, for for Stephen Ross. There's no there's there's no middle ground. There's no half measure short of expulsion. I know we want to get to Kroenke in a minute, but let's move quickly to Snyder. We'll come back. There is the quality argument, right? This is a really bad allegation. As far as I know, this is the only one allegation that could cost Stephen Ross's job. On the other side of the coin, there is the quantity argument. Dan Snyder and I want to mention something you spoke about on social media. Dan Snyder, we, I mean, I made the joke, but Washington is at some point playing sports law bingo. They have a different legal story. They, those lawyers are kept busy over and over, and then not coincidentally, they can't keep a general counsel for more than a year. So there's something in the waters over at Washington. You keep getting hit with controversy after controversy. Any place to work. The news cycle in the 24 hours or 40 hours leading up to the Super Bowl was that similar to, to Ross, that there now was a path that owners would be considering potentially having some consideration for Snyder losing his team. So we've spoke about Snyder endlessly on this podcast, sexual assault allegations, sexual harassment allegations. Dan, the portion that I want to touch upon with you, something that you brought up, which I thought was very interesting online, which I, again, I think is being underreported. Congress, right? They are not bound by certain privileges that are be, would be applicable in a court of law. We've heard reports that Washington and the NFL are going to use some form of the attorney-client privilege to try to block themselves from Congress. And Dan, you went in the weeds, which I love when you do. I always love it. And you found the, the section that shows that Congress doesn't have to abide by certain privileges in, in terms of this hashtag, release the emails, hashtag all this. Congress does not have to, you know, at the end of the day, NFL and Washington have to listen to Congress. Talk a little bit about the research that you found. Congress has very broad and extensive investigative powers. They can investigate anything that falls within the, the ambit of their legislative purpose. And what's really interesting about congressional investigations is that it's not a judicial proceeding. The attorney-client privilege, historically, under the federal rules of evidence, it applies in judicial proceedings. And Congress has, ne- during the course of investigations, the chairman of a committee has the final say on whether or not to recognize the attorney-client privilege or the work product privilege. And Congress has historically disregarded assertions of the attorney-client privilege, which is a vehicle that's a function of common law that's asserted in civil litigation. It has no applicability to congressional investigation. So what this committee could do theoretically is subpoena Dan Snyder or subpoena these records. And I I don't know what form of, of, of the request, I don't know if there was a formal subpoena or just a request for records, but ultimately, Congress has the power to demand production of these materials. 
irrespective of whether uh, the, the client asserts an attorney client privilege because the privilege is not applicable in congressional investigations. And if the NFL or Snyder refuse to produce these investigative records in the face of a demand by Congress, they could find themselves in contempt of Congress very easily. So the battle that I see shaping up at some point coming very soon is Dan Snyder versus Congress because his assertion of the attorney-client privilege is going to be rejected by Congress and it's gonna to lead to a contempt of Congress finding and ultimately a federal lawsuit over the applicability of the attorney-client privilege during congressional investigations. And Congress has never recognized the attorney-client privilege in these kinds of investigations. And it should have been clear sailing for, the NFL, for Congress, but for one court case a year ago or two years ago, a congressional committee sought the tax returns of Donald Trump and Trump challenged that in federal court and it led to a US Supreme Court decision in 2020 in which the court in dicta mentioned that congressional investigations or the witnesses in a congressional investigation have constitutional and common law privileges including the attorney-client privilege. Now, that was a statement made in dicta because the Trump versus Mazar LLP case was about executive privilege. So any statement by the Supreme Court relating to the attorney-client privilege would technically be dicta, but it shows an uncertainty or a lack of clarity in the law. And I think at some point, Congress is going to pull that lever and demand production of these materials regardless or over the in the face of an attorney-client privilege objection. And we're gonna have potentially either a big battle playing out in the media or potentially a federal court lawsuit over the availability of that kind of privilege in a congressional investigation. So this is an interesting legal front that is yet to, be, that is yet to develop, but I think I can foresee uh, in a couple of weeks, this kind of inquiry going in that direction. Why we need to talk about this in the context of Snyder potentially selling his team I mean, there was a conversation that occurred with the uh, House roundtable last week, or maybe it was a week and a half ago at this point, about a new sexual assault allegation directly pertaining to Dan Snyder. And then Washington came out after the fact, and they, and they said, it was funny, I saw the Adam Schefter tweet, we are announcing an independent investigation. Dan Snyder will find an independent investigation to research this. And I'm like, this seems like deja vu. I feel like we just had this with Beth Wilkinson. And then Roger Goodell came out during his speech, and he goes, I don't know what an independent investigation is. We're going to be in charge of this investigation. And I'm like, wait, this exact thing just happened. And at the end of that exact thing, and this is the whole Beth Wilkinson sexual harassment, toxic workplace allegation. What we found out is that it wasn't an independent investigation. It was an investigation that was designed to protect against potential litigation. And then we found out, Dan, another update in the last 40 hours, it's been a busy sports law timeframe, that if Beth Wilkinson had issued a written report one of her recommendations or potential avenues of recourse would be to require Dan Snyder to sell his team. Now, Dan, all the pieces are coming together. Why wasn't there a written report? Because maybe the NFL had some inkling that Beth Wilkinson was going to say exactly that. And those are the reports that are coming out. So, Dan, what's happening now, just uh, you know, briefly, is that, the again, we're having the same song and dance. Why? Well, we'll launch an independent investigation. Everyone relax. The NFL goes, no, we're in charge of the investigation. I don't believe one word out of Goodell or Snyder's mouth when it comes to these investigations. And I think there is a real concern at Washington HQ or NFL HQ that these emails are going to come out, just like you, you and I have been talking about in terms of these privilege. And there will be a real groundswell and some real teeth 
just like we might see with Stephen Ross to get him kicked out. I think it's going to be really interesting to me to find out who the investigator is going to be, which law firm is going to oversee this investigation. If Roger Goodell turns to Beth Wilkinson, you can view that as the sort of a signal or the first step in a desire to just jettison Dan Snyder from the ranks of the ownership, because you know, you know how Dan, how we surmise how Beth Wilkinson feels about Dan Snyder based on Florio's reporting that she recommended that he be forced to sell the team. So if Goodell taps her to do this investigation, you'll know what's going on here. There's no way he's going to give it to Wilkinson again because it's not. Oh, wait a second. She has this institutional knowledge built up of having interviewed Snyder, interviewed other employees within the organization. She has. She has, there's no learning curve here. She has extensive experience around the common nucleus of operative facts involving all the allegations. I agree. And to, then, to give it to somebody else entirely. She's not going to get out it. Out of the blue. She's not going to get it. Well, <laughs> that, then that decision will tell you all you need right. to know about what the NFL wants to do. Right. I think their instinct is to protect Snyder. And I don't know why they want to do that because what Snyder could do is jeopardize things for the league before Congress and create bigger problems for the other owners and the league in front of congressional committees and potentially congressional legislation. I mean, there are a a lot of cards that the uh, that, that Congress can play here, repealing this, the antitrust exemption under the Sports Broadcasting Act. They could legislate in areas that are uncomfortable for the NFL. They could demand materials under the auspices of a congressional investigation. This is going to get worse for the NFL unless they do things above board and, and, and doing things the right way. And I don't see how you can uh, appoint anyone other than Beth Wilkinson to oversee this new investigation. We'll keep tabs on that, obviously. I want to get you back then to the Stephen Ross and the Kroenke conversation, and then we'll talk about sports betting very quickly. Stephen Ross, there has been, we'll bake Kroenke into this conversation as well. Stephen Ross, we've talked about it a hundred times. Uh, the allegation is that he offered a bribe for to Brian Flores to lose games back in 2019. Okay, now, similarly, the allegation that we're seeing from our, uh, our fans over in St. Louis is, hey, wait a minute, didn't we have all these different podcasts and all these conversations that the Rams lost all these games right as they were leaving St. Louis. And all of a sudden, and by their second year in Los Angeles, they were a winning team. I think they went 11 and five and made the wild card their second year in Los Angeles. So maybe, right. And we should ask some questions about how, was it possible that Kroenke also has an allegation with respect to, you know, maybe providing some incentive to lose games, not to say that we have any evidence of that, but if Ross gets dinged on this, I think people are going to be asking questions. Tank for Tua, Tank for Zion, like uh, my Knicks had. I think that question is going to be asked. So, Dan, let me turn it to you. The question about a potential federal crime, I think you can just hit it with respect to Ross, but I, I think the analysis is going to play in many states. If what we're surmising about the St. Louis Rams and Stan Kroenke creates a federal sports bribery crime, then one-third of the teams in all of professional sports could be guilty of the same crime. I mean, one of the points that Scott Boris is making is that there's a built-in incentive within Major League Baseball to basically build through the draft, stockpile assets, have cheap young labor, and just jettison you know, some, of the, some of the older players and teams aren't playing to win for this year. They're playing to have sustained long-term success in the future and compromising the instant or the immediate couple of years, but I think the Kroenke situation is a little bit different. He wanted to create a scenario or at least a justification, not for stockpiling draft picks, but to uh, satisfy the NFL's relocation policy by, by crushing 
interest in in the St. Louis market and turning off all the fans and you know his the, the drafting record and some of the free agent decisions that were made during the period between 2010 and 2015 were detrimental to fan support and he may have been acting out of self-interest but absent a bribe or some kind of financial incentive given to members of the organization to lose on purpose or to draft poorly I don't think you're going to find that kind of a smoking gun they took their foot off the wheel, off the pedal and dialed it back and intentionally tanked their seasons or multiple seasons. But that in and of itself doesn't create a federal or state crime for bribery in athletic contests. To have the crime of bribery, you need to have an offer, a tendering of a bribe, an attempt to bribe a, a player, coach, official to influence the outcome of a game. And simply having an organizational malaise and intentionally drafting poorly, while I think that might create some class action claims for some disagreed fans and season ticket holders, I don't think it meets the elements of either the federal crime under the Sports Bribery Act or even the you know, state law sports bribery crimes. And the federal crime, you have to essentially attempt to carry into effect the scheme in commerce to influence by bribery. You need bribery. So in the absence of a bribe offer, and we're going to get to offers in a second. I don't think the Federal Sports Bribery Act deals with offers or promises. I think it deals only with carrying into effect a scheme in commerce. So the Cronky situation may make for a great narrative as to his motivations, but it doesn't come anywhere near the line for a criminal offense of sports bribery, unless there's an actual bribe tendered or offered. And there's no evidence of that uh, with Stan Kroenke. I want to get back to the Ross situation. And, you know, there's been a lot of reporting that, you know, he's, you know, that if these allegations are true, that he's offered Brian Flores $100,000 to lose every game, that that creates a, a violation of the federal sports bribery act. And that's not, that's simply not true. I mean, I've, I've looked at the Sports Bribery Act under federal law, and it, it requires that you attempt to carry into effect a scheme in commerce. And a scheme in commerce is basically using the interstate commerce or the mails or transportation to communicate the offer. And the allegation and the complaint is devoid of any contention that this offer was made through interstate commerce. It was probably made, if at all, in person, in Florida, and, and that element of it lacks the interstate commerce requirement, and this does not carry over into the realm of carrying into effect any scheme in commerce. It's not a federal crime. If anything, it's a state crime under Florida Statutes 838.12, which criminalizes the offering of a bribe not simply carrying into effect a scheme in commerce, simply making the offer of a bribe is the criminal offense. And therein lies the difference between state law and federal law. Federal law doesn't criminalize the offer, only uh, criminalizes the attempt to carry it into effect in interstate commerce. Whereas Florida law, if you make the offer, even if it's not accepted, you've committed a state law offense. And it's a much broader statute under Florida law because it covers not just a game or a contest, but any sport, meaning the whole season, and it specifically refers to losing, whereas the federal law makes no distinction. It just talks about influencing the outcome. I think it's half a dozen of one, six of another, 
But the state law crime is what fits Stephen Ross's alleged offense. The federal law simply is not applicable here because of a lack of interstate commerce involved in the alleged offer. And I think just to, for our, again, our, non, our non-lawyers, I think what you're, what you're getting at is that Stephen Ross, under Florida state law, is in a lot more uh, hot water than potentially someone else would be without something like that on the books. That Stephen Ross has, has probably some, something real to be concerned with, even if the offer was made, even if there's no smoking gun a check, there is you know, no proof that actual any money was exchanged. Mm-hmm. The fact that Stephen Ross uttered those words could be the, the nail in the coffin. If prosecutors go down the federal route, they're going to end up wasting their time potentially, and it's going to be a motion to dismiss the indictment. I mean, that's a long way away. I mean, he's going to lose the football team first. The federal criminal or state criminal aspects of this are going to come long after the NFL completes the investigation. But I think it's somewhat incorrect analysis to just reflexively say, and a number of commentators have done this. Every commentator has done this to just say the Federal Sports Bribery Act is the law that he's violating. And that's just simply not true. If you look at the precise language in the statute, it requires a lot more than just a naked promise. It requires the attempt to carry the scheme into effect through interstate commerce. And I've just said this time and again, but ultimately there are gonna be criminal repercussions for Stephen Ross, whether it's under federal law or state law, but let's just get the appropriate law correct. It's a Florida state law violation, not a federal violation. Compare the two statutory schemes and you'll see why I I make that finding. We'll jump away from the owners for a minute. Let's uh, get to Dan. I know a topic near and dear to you as we're putting this episode in the books. A lot of numbers released on the betting handle in New York since legalization was done a couple of weeks back. I had mentioned that I had uh, placed some legal wagers on the Super Bowl. had a lot of fun doing that. Dan, you know, if you can, let's just tell our listeners where we stand, you know, with New York sports betting and what that means for the rest of our country. Okay, well, the numbers are out. You know, New York has been live for online sports betting for 30 days or a little bit more than 30 days. And Governor Hockle last night, or, you know, I guess the New York State Gaming Commission released the numbers The first 30 days of online sports betting in New York generated $2 billion in bets, $138 million in total revenue just for one month alone. But here's the big number, and this is what got my attention. The tax collection for New York State, meaning New York State is collecting 51% of the revenues under this competitive bidding framework. The state's cut for the first month alone is $70 million. That's for one month alone. By comparison, the largest market for sports betting in all of 2020 was New Jersey. And for that 12 month period of having online sports betting and retail sports betting, meaning in-person sports betting, for the whole calendar 2020, New Jersey generated $50 million in taxes for the state based upon taxing operator revenues. New York has already beaten that by 40% in one month alone. And if you extrapolate these figures, New York is on, in my opinion, on pace to generate uh, close to a billion dollars in state tax collections in, in year one alone. And why that's significant is that Governor Cuomo had estimated that if New York did a competitive bidding model where operators put up their best bids, it could generate half a billion dollars in taxes for New York State. New York could potentially double that in the first year alone. And why the, why this number of $70 million is so eye-popping is that, one, it's the first month, and it's going to take a while 
to build up some momentum and acquire customers and get people used to the different apps. And several of the apps didn't even start on time. I think I think Win uh, got a pretty late start if it started at all. So they're not firing all on all cylinders, and the market is far from being a mature market. Yet in the first month, New York has already eclipsed New Jersey for all of New Jersey's 2020 calendar year. It's it, it's an inflection point in the legislative debate around sports betting. And I think what could happen going forward, and I don't think this is a good thing because the, that that tax rate is kind of high, but it it shows state policymakers that even at a 51% tax rate, there's ample room for profit for operators. And if you're a state that is looking to raise money through legalizing online sports betting, and you look at New York getting a billion annually in state tax collections versus New Jersey collecting only 50 million, I think it may point states in the direction of trying to emulate the public-private partnership model that New York has has effectuated, which is through competitive bidding. And uh, Arkansas has, is already making some inroads towards emulating that model. Hawaii introduced a similar bill. There aren't that many states left, Dan, but I think there are about 18 remaining. So this is gonna be a really interesting area to watch to see if New York has a channeling effect on how other states approach legalized sports betting. So I think on that, and we didn't we didn't talk about it in the last episode. We got a call, and just uh, we'll give them a quick shout out. MSG Networks give us a call. They emailed us last week, and they said we're doing this special on Betapalooza, and that was all these special bets that they were doing to lead up to the Super Bowl. And obviously, you'd be blind to not realize that, that was because of New York's legalization of sports betting. So you know, we'll see what comes down the road for Conic Detrimental and MSG. But we got that call because we are, you know, we have some strong ties to New York and obviously MSG is New York. So Dan, the more, I guess for us, maybe this is a little bit of a selfish conversation and for our listeners that are into sports betting, the more that sports betting goes on the up and up, it's done overneath, above the table. I think there will be more opportunities for be it sports lawyers or lawyers to even to just help help get in the space or just our fans that are sports fans that want to bet. So what Dan is telling you, what I'm telling you, what we're seeing on the number of people that follow these trends it looks like we're getting closer to closer to more states legalizing. And I was uh, was with a lot of people for the Super Bowl. Everybody was taking advantage of these new first time better rates that I think were like five dollars to win, uh, like you know, uh, five dollars to win two eighty. It was like if you picked the Rams or the Bengals, you got crazy odds, and and they're enticing. So you have these matches up to six thousand dollars for some sports books. And I, I think the, the race is going to be on. I think it's just a matter of, of when at this point. I don't think it's if anymore. I think New York has shown us that. Well, I mean, we're, we're just barely scratching the surface nationally. I mean, we, even though it's 32 states, the three largest states, California, Texas, Florida, representing a quarter of the U.S. population, they don't have any legal sports betting, none. So uh, I think 2022 and 2023 may bring some changes in that regard. California has a ballot initiative to legalize retail and online sports betting. We don't know how many ballot proposals are going to make the ballot, but Californians are going to vote on it this year. Texans may vote on it in 2023. And in Florida, there could be another referendum in 2024. Maybe the Seminole Tribe of Florida wins their appeal. So the three largest states at some point within the next three years could all have legal online sports betting, which would just really be a a massive infusion of betters into the into the economic pipeline for sports betting. And if New York was generating $2 billion of handle a month, Texas, Florida, California are going to eclipse that. So Dan, I think just to add, you know, we had a big win. I think, I know we talked on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, you and I spoke about Novak 
And, you know, just the way my mind works, I always try to think, you know, all the sports law analysis that we're doing, all this digging into the weeds, how can we, you know, help our listeners and we help our own uh, wallets with respect to some bet. So Dan, just, just quick. And then we'll, I guess this will be my what to watch for Dan. I'll give you one and we'll, we'll get to go home. Dan, here's my one. We've been following the Novak Djokovic thing uh, pretty closely. There was an article that came out today, which we posted on our website that Novak is prepared not to play in the French open or Wimbledon, that he is not going to get the vaccine solely to play um, in any way, shape or form. So we're in the weeds of it, obviously, because we followed these lawsuits. The French Open right now has a law, or they've been on record saying that they will not recognize Novak Djokovic um, exempt status. They're not going to recognize it. So unless something changes between now and May, Novak Djokovic is not going to be playing in the French Open. Right now, he's the number two favorite for the Open behind only Rafa Nadal. So if the number two favorite gets ruled out for whatever reason, for injury, for not getting the vaccine, the odds will shift. So I'm going to tell you, if you felt very confident that Novak is not going to play, which you know, as of today, I think is a pretty decent bet. The odds will move. Similarly, Wimbledon has not said as strongly that he, they're not going to let him play. But, you know, Novak might make a stand, just like we saw in basketball. Kyrie Irving, you know, he can get the vaccine if he wanted to, but he wants to make a stand. He's making a, a point that he's not going to be forced to do something. So if Novak just decides not to compete in Wimbledon, certainly he's telling that to reporters right now. He's prepared to sit out Wimbledon. Dan, would, would you be shocked if I told you that Novak, is the massive favorite to win Wimbledon at plus 115. The next guy behind him is Danny Medvedev at plus 700. Then it goes down to Berrettini, I think at plus 950, and then so on. I think it's 12 to 1, 13 to 1. So you can get some really good odds. If you if you believe that Novak's going to make a political statement, whatever he wants to do, and he's not going to play, the odds are not really taking Novak at face value. And then again, they were wrong on the Australian Open. So I think if you want to place a futures bet, have some fun action, we can follow it as a sports law podcast. I'm telling people... To make a bet on Wimbledon, that is not Novak Djokovic. I think you'll get very good ads as of today, February 15th. Put in the book. That's really interesting. I imagine the betters in other professional sports would hope that they would be pricing anomalies like that in the games that they bet on. But unfortunately for them, that's not the case. So we'll keep an eye on that one to see if those odds remain intact in light of this recent development. Definitely. We'll keep an eye on that. The other one we'll keep an eye on is the Tyler Skaggs criminal trials continuing. Matt Harvey's on the stand today. Uh, I'm sure if something breaks, uh, Dan and I will break it down. But Dan, I think that about does it for this episode. Anything else to add before we close this thing up? I think this is an episode that had heavy NFL coverage and some of the most interesting NFL legal stories of the entire year. I mean, it, it you know, two owners are going to be in jeopardy and we have Snyder, Ross, the Brian Flores suit. This is really intensifying the, the coverage and the heat on the National Football League, even though there are no more games left to be played. This is this is really the season of sports law for the National Football League. This is in light of the settlement of the St. Louis Rams case. These are some very juicy legal stories involving the most heavily followed league in, in North America. So we'll keep an eye on all those cases and break it down for you in the weeks ahead. Okay. Uh, Dan Wallach's on social media at Wallach Legal. Myself, Dan Lust at Sports Law Lust. The show at Con Detrimental. The website, ConductDetrimental.com. I know a couple of you are working on some stories with respect to the PGA Tour, some sports betting stories. If you do have any interest in writing for our website or joining our team, certainly just reach out and we are happy to have you on board. For Dan, myself, and the Conduct Detrimental team, we will see you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.